And I'd like to have us uh, please turn to our text uh, for this morning, which is John uh, chapter 4, uh, verses uh, 46 through 54. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. And we're continuing a sermon series this morning um, looking at uh, the signs, the seven signs that uh, John records in his gospel um, throughout, uh, in order to reveal who Christ is uh, throughout really the first half of the gospel. And this is the second one. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. And this is what the text says. Once more Jesus visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants came and met him with the news that his son was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that that was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his entire household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming to Galilee from Judea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, a few weeks ago I had a pretty interesting conversation with a friend of mine about her job. Uh, my friend is currently working what she would describe as her dream job. Uh, she's the principal of a small Christian high school in another state. The thing is, though, she didn't always know that that was her dream job. In fact, uh, until a few years ago, she was actually working in an entirely different line of work altogether, one that had very little to do with what she does now. You see, my friend, uh, for a number of years, was a pretty successful member of corporate America. And over the course of a couple of years, she had quickly worked her way up through the company that she was at to become a mid-level manager. And with her fast rise came promotions, um, pay raises, and a decent amount of name recognition for her, both within the company and also in her field of expertise. Suddenly, a few years ago, though, all of that stopped, came to a halt. The company that she worked for had recently had a new CEO takeover, and my friend started to notice after that change that the promotions, the kind of promotions that used to go to her and her other co-workers uh, from inside the company, were now instead going to outsiders. Um, every time a position above her would open up, she would apply, just like she always had, interview, but instead of getting it, like she had for a couple of years, uh, she instead was stuck in her same position. And so after a couple failed attempts to continue moving up, she asked for a meeting with the CEO. She came in, she explained the whole situation to him, and she asked him if there was anything more that she could be doing to better prepare herself for the next opportunity that came uh, before her. And he was kind and diplomatic in his response and told her that the company was happy with her work and what she was doing. Um, and as good as it was for my friend to hear that, that still wasn't exactly the answer she was looking for. And so she tried a, a bit more direct question. She said, I'm glad that you're happy with my work, but do you see a future for me here at this company, one that includes more than just what I'm currently doing right now? There's sort of a moment of silence, and the CEO kind of sat back thoughtfully in his chair and finally shrugged his shoulders and said to her, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. 
My friend went home and updated her resume that same night and uh, started to look around for other opportunities. And through a whole bunch of twists and turns, she learned about this high school principal position a few weeks later. And after the encouragement of friends and family members, she decided to apply for it, interviewed for it, and as they say, the rest is history. She got it, and that's what she's been doing for the last couple of years, um, even if it's quite different from what she used to do. What's interesting about that story, though, is that just a few months ago, she actually got words from some of her friends who still work for that same company that she used to, that her position, the one she used to hold, has now been eliminated. Brandon, she said in our conversation, it's crazy. At the time, hearing that CEO tell me that I didn't really have a future in the company was one of the worst things that I could have heard. I thought I was going to be working there for the rest of my life. I certainly didn't think that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. And yet, she said to me, God clearly had other plans. And looking back on it, I can see the signs, actually, that were leading up to that. The signs that he had put in front of me to lead me to where I am now. I couldn't see it at the time, but now I realize that this is what he was pointing me towards all along. Well, in the same way, our text for today has a sign that points us ahead, too. It's not a sign about what job we should work or where it is that God's leading us in the next couple of years like it was for my friend. Instead, it's a sign about God's Son. It's a sign about Jesus Christ. It's a sign about who He is, what He's about, and what it means for us as Christian believers today. You see, this passage has the second sign that the Apostle John includes uh, in his Gospel. Like we said last week when we looked at the first one, when Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter 2. In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three, this sort of thing would be referred to as a miracle. Dunamis is the Greek word for that. But John doesn't use that word when he talks about these kind of miraculous things that Jesus does. Instead, he uses the word semion in the Greek, or signs. And that's because that's what these are for John in his Gospel. These signs, these seven signs that he includes in his gospel, they do more than just tell us something that Jesus did, some action that he took, something that people observed. Instead, they also tell us, they're meant to tell us who Jesus is. That's the whole reason that John includes these signs in his gospel. They're there to help us understand Jesus, to reveal something to us as John's readers about Jesus' identity, his purpose, his mission in the world. And they're also meant to point us ahead to everything that's still to come in this gospel and actually everything that's still to come in God's plan of salvation in his world. In other words, like so much else when it comes to Jesus, there's more than meets the eye when it comes to these signs that John describes in his gospel. John wants to peel back the layers with us so that we can see what's really going on. This passage tells the story of a long-distance healing, But it's actually so much more than that. It tells us so much more about what John wants us to understand. He wants us to see more than just a worried father having his son restored to health. That's part of what's going on here. But it's not all of it. The story is much bigger than that. Because when Jesus is involved, for John at least, a miracle isn't just a miracle. It's a sign of something bigger, something broader, something much more important. And that's what we get to see here in our text together this morning. Now, I'll admit, uh, things start out kind of rocky 
in this text. Uh, Jesus is back in Cana of Galilee here, which is actually where he performed his first sign of changing water into wine in, in John chapter 2. Um, and there's a man who comes up to him and asks for another sign, a sequel of sorts, another one of these semion. And we don't know much about this man. Uh, the text says that he was a royal official, which probably means that he worked for the Jewish king, Herod, who the Romans had put in charge uh, over the Jewish people to make sure that they stayed in line. Uh, we also know that he was from Capernaum, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it was about 20 miles away from where Jesus was in Cana. Beyond that, though, we don't really know anything else about this guy. We don't know how this man knew about Jesus. Uh, we don't know how he had heard about Jesus or, or what he may have heard. In fact, we don't even know if he knew about the first sign that Jesus performed a few weeks earlier, changing water into wine at a wedding. All we know is that as verse 47 puts it, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. That seems like a reasonable request, right? Heal my son. As a young father myself, if one of my boys was sick and I heard that there was someone who could work wonders the way that Jesus could, I think I'd probably go and see him too. After all, if Jesus could do something as comparably simple or insignificant as turn water into wine to keep a wedding party going, then surely he could do this too, right? Surely he could help this father. Surely he could and would heal his son. And so that's, I think, why Jesus' response here often catches us so off guard. Because in verse 48, Jesus says to this man, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. And let's just admit, that's kind of puzzling coming from Jesus, right? I mean, we're used to, to Jesus being gentle and humble in heart. We're used to him saying things like, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, we're used to seeing him take pity on the poor, the hurting, the diseased, and, and standing up for them, healing them, helping them. And so given the chance to do exactly that, exactly what we're used to him doing here for this father and his son and their family, to have compassion on them and to heal this boy, why does Jesus respond the way that he does here? Why does he seemingly brush off this father's concerns? And why does he make it sound like this boy's sickness isn't worth his time? Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. I'll be honest, that question kind of puzzled me as I was coming to this text uh, to prepare this sermon this morning. But a number of the commentators I read, I thought, gave me a helpful answer. Um, a number of them actually don't think that Jesus' response here is intended just for this father or even for him at all. Instead, what most commentators think is that Jesus was instead responding to the crowd that was gathered around him when this father walked up. And I'll admit, uh, the text doesn't specifically mention that there was a whole crowd around Jesus. We're speculating a bit here. But I think it seems likely that Jesus wasn't alone when this father approached him to ask him to come and heal his son. After all, in the verses just before our text for this morning, John makes clear that even this early in his ministry, Jesus had already become pretty well known in Galilee. In verse 45, for instance, John writes, When Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen what he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. In other words, Jesus has started to attract a following. 
even this early in his ministry, um, there, was, there were people who were starting to gather around him wherever he went. And at least some of the people in Galilee had seen or heard of his ministry back in Jerusalem. Others would have actually probably known about him from his earlier sign of changing water into wine because it had happened right there in the same town that he was in now. And so now that Jesus was back... It seems likely that a crowd had gathered around him and started following him. As he went from place to place going about his ministry, these people would have gone with him. And some might have been intrigued by what he was saying and what he was teaching. I'm assuming at least some, though, were just there to see what would happen next. They were curious and wanted to see if something out of the ordinary would happen. They wanted to see another act of power, another miracle, another one of these signs that would prove that Jesus was someone special and worth their time. In other words, they wanted to see Jesus do something spectacular. And so if that's the case, and I think it's reasonable to think that it was, then when this father walked up, explained to Jesus that his son was lying on his deathbed in Capernaum and asked him to come and heal him, this crowd would have had exactly what it wanted. Yes, Jesus, go with him. Do it again. Hey, guys, this is going to be even better than when he changed water into wine. This is going to be even more powerful and significant. They were eager for the miracle, eager for the sign, eager for the spectacle. That's what they wanted from Jesus. The problem, though, is that for some of them, that's probably all they wanted from Jesus. As N.T. Wright puts it in his commentary on this passage, the word has become flesh. But suppose people admire the flesh so much that they forget about the word. That, it seems, is the danger Jesus is now facing and will continue to face through the next seven chapters as the sequence of signs unfolds before our eyes. The people are wanting a Messiah who will perform miracles to order rather than moving on to real faith that will grasp Jesus' hidden identity the word dwelling in the flesh. Wright actually uses an analogy that I found helpful in explaining that. He writes, Imagine a town planner designing a new set of road signs to get people around the town in the quickest and easiest fashion. The town is old, famous, and beautiful, and so nothing but very fine and well-designed signs will do for such a setting. But when the signs are put up, you discover that everyone is stopping and getting out of their cars to stand and admire the signs rather than continuing to drive. Instead of traffic flowing smoothly by, it's getting clogged up worse than before. Be like people stopping their cars to get out and take a selfie with a really beautiful sign, right? You can imagine the sort of traffic chaos that would lead to. And that, Wright says, is the situation here. People have started to become so interested in Jesus' signs, his miracles, that they're not interested in Jesus himself. They've missed the forest for the trees, as we like to say. They see the signs, but they've missed what they're pointing to. They see what Jesus is doing, but they can't see the significance of it. They see Jesus' actions, but they can't really see what it's all about. And so as a result, they've come to care more about those signs that Jesus is performing than Jesus himself. You know, though, I don't think that's only a problem for people back then. I don't think Jesus gave that warning, unless you people see signs and wonders you'll never believe, just to people gathered around him back that day in Cana and Galilee. 
And that's because I don't think it was just the crowds back then who followed him, who from time to time slipped into this temptation of paying more attention to the things that Jesus did, or even the things he said, than to Jesus himself. Instead, I think that's still a temptation for us today. You see, the fact is, we still sometimes lose the forest for the trees when it comes to Jesus. We too can make this mistake of of focusing more on what Scripture tells us he did or said than who it was trying to tell us he was. We can make a habit of talking about Jesus in glowing terms and trying to emulate him in our lives. And yet in the process, sometimes we too end up inadvertently turning Jesus into someone much less significant than he really was. I can't tell you how many Christian talks and sermons I've heard over the years that do exactly that. A speaker or preacher spends 20, 30, sometimes even 40 minutes talking all about Jesus with reverence and awe, and yet in the end, ultimately portrays him as nothing more than simply a good role model or a great teacher. I've heard and read the same sorts of things in other Christian resources too, podcasts, books, lectures. In fact, I even came across it in a children's Bible once. You see, uh, not long after Levi was born, people gave us a lot of books. We got all the classics like Dr. Seuss and P.D. Eastman, The Giving Tree by Shel Silverstein. Uh, we got a few different ones, too, that you can tell were written within the last couple of years, like a Bob Ross Learn Your Colors book. Um, Never Touch a Monster, which is actually a quite fun one to do with your kids because they want to keep touching the monster. And then My Dad Thinks He's Funny, which somebody thought would be funny to give to us. Um, We also got a whole bunch of Christian books in the process, though, too. And most of them are pretty good. Some of them aren't. That's the problem when you give a pastor and his family Christian books, right? When I read those books to my boys, I'm not just reading books at bedtime for them. I'm evaluating every single word for doctrinal correctness, you know? Is it in line with Scripture? And most importantly, maybe, is it Reformed, you know? And yet there was one book that someone gave us, and we're not even sure who it was. We couldn't remember where we had gotten it from. Uh, It was a children's Bible. And it was even worse than most of the others. It was actually downright terrible. It was called My First Read and Learn Bible. Um, And I would say it's terrible for a number of reasons, but the biggest one is because of what it has to say, or actually maybe more accurately what it doesn't say, about who Jesus is. You see, there are only three stories in that Bible about Jesus. And unfortunately, none of them say anything about who he actually was. There's no reference to his death. There's nothing about his resurrection, no mention of him being God's son. Instead, all it includes about him is the story of his birth, the fact that he healed some people, and then a final chapter about how he let little children come to him. And with that, at the end of that one, the whole thing ends with the line, Jesus will always be our friend makes me shake my head every time I read it. You see, on the surface, that sounds good, right? Jesus is nice, he's friendly, he wants to be our friend, and we should be like that too. That's the implication of so much of that sort of stuff, right? So much supposedly Christian preaching, teaching, writing, all those resources, they could ultimately boil down just to that. Teaching us to be good, nice people, just like Jesus was. The problem, though, is that that's called moralism. And it's most decidedly not the gospel. 
But simply, moralism is the idea that there's a moral of the story and that that's all we need to take away from something that we're reading or watching or listening to. If we can figure that out, what the moral lesson is, then that's all we need. And often, that's what overly simplistic Christian presentations of Jesus end up becoming. Far too often, Christian authors, speakers, even pastors end up boiling Jesus down to little more than a moral exemplar who teaches us how to be good, nice people who follow the rules and never step out of line. But is that really who Jesus is? Is that really all there is to him? Is that really all we're supposed to see in him or believe about him? He's just a good role model? Just a moral exemplar, just a nice guy with some good lessons on how we too can be nice, good guys and gals? Is that all we're supposed to see and understand about him? The answer that John gives here and throughout his gospel is most decidedly no. That's not all there is to Jesus. Just like focusing on his signs more than Jesus himself, reducing Jesus to a role model or a moral exemplar is missing the forest for the trees. It's boiling Jesus down to something he was never meant to be. And that's failing to see him for who he really is. So who was he? Who is he? What are we supposed to see here? Well, I understand that. To see what John is trying to show us about Jesus, to truly understand what he is pointing us to with this sign, we need to go back to the Father in this text. You remember him? This guy shows up with a crowd all around Jesus. He's probably hot and sweaty. He's walked a day and a half, like I said, 20 miles from Capernaum through the hills of Galilee, up and down, up and down through rolling hills to Cana. He stands there politely as Jesus scolds the miracle-hungry crowd, and then he repeats his desperate request. Sir, come heal my child before he dies. And it's at that moment that this sign happens. No one knows it yet, but that's actually exactly when it occurs. Jesus turns to this man and says, Go, your son will live. And he does. Amazingly, that's exactly what this father does. He listens. He turns around, walks away from Jesus, and begins the day and a half, 20-mile journey back to his home. In contrast to the whole crowd that only wants to see a sign from Jesus, this father believes that one has actually happened. He takes Jesus at his word without any kind of confirmation and simply trusts that what Jesus has told him is true. And it is. It is true. Verses 51 through 53 say, While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. It's a long-distance healing. As commentator Fred Bruner writes, Jesus' sentence apparently shoots across the miles to distant Capernaum and cures a child. How is this possible? Can a spoken word have such reach and power? And the answer is yes, it can. And that's what John wants us to see. 
somehow, some way, Jesus' simple statement, your son will live, affects a recovery from death 20 miles away. Jesus' word has the power to give life. That's the sign here. That's the significance. And that's what John is trying to tell us about who Jesus is. After all, this isn't the first time that we see something like that in Scripture, is it? It's not the first time that this sort of thing happens. It's not the first time that we see a word, just a word, bringing life. It's happened before. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, God did it. He calls all creation, existence, and life itself into being with just a word. And now Jesus is doing the same exact thing. And that is John's point. That's what he wants us to see. That's what this sign is meant to reveal to us about who Jesus is. He's not just some role model. He's not just a moral exemplar. He's not just a good teacher for us to learn from and try and imitate and copy. He's not even just a worker of signs and wonders. He's the very Son of God himself. That's what this sign confirms. Just like his Father, Jesus is the giver of life. And also just like his Father, he can do that with just a word. And that brings us to the Gospel. You see, this healing is, is important and it's significant for this Father, for his Son, and for their family. It's God's grace to them on a personal level. It restores this boy's health, right? And it also actually affects faith in this entire family. They come to faith in Jesus because of this. And yet this sign is, is bigger than what it does just for that family. That's because here in this healing, we get a hint of an even greater healing, an even greater recovery a deeper and fuller restoration and salvation. You see, when these sorts of signs happen, when hand-washing water at a wedding becomes wine, when the sick and dying recover at just a word, it's a sign that something even more significant is going on. The fact is here that Jesus hasn't just rescued a random boy in Capernaum from death. He hasn't just healed this child of his sickness. He hasn't just saved him. He saved all of us, too. He's healed us of our sickness to sin. He's rescued and restored not just one boy, but his entire world. That's what we need to understand and see. Jesus isn't just some miracle worker who pulls off the occasional party trick or a well-timed coincidence. Instead, he's the very son of God. He's the one in whose word is life itself. And he's the one who makes our ultimate recovery possible. By his life, death, and resurrection, we are redeemed, restored, and made God's beloved people again. That's what this sign and the others in this gospel point us to. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, it's impossible to fully grasp who you are. And so, so often we try to, to latch on to certain pieces of who you are, certain pieces of who your son Jesus is. And in the process, we end up reducing him to just someone to imitate, someone to learn from. And yet there is so much more. Through your son, Lord, you have made our very salvation possible. 
Thank you for the signs that point us to who he really is and instill in us a faith and trust in him that we can live in that faith and trust each and every day. Pray this all in his name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.